Hello, everyone. You are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, you'll hear all about drummer Lee Kelly. Lee's been in Nashville since the late 90s. You'll hear all about his informal education in the vibrant music scene in North Carolina. Lee's been busy working with many artists in Nashville, from Gary Allen, Mark Chestnut, Heidi Newfield, and he's preparing to go out with Aaron Tippin here in 2015. To find out more about this podcast and other podcasts, go to WorkingDrummer.net, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Here's Lee Kelly. I haven't had a place to set up one kit, let alone two. This is that awesome. came from me being in a condo and me having a few drinks one night on eBay. <laughs> and went, hey, that'd be kind of cool. Oh, crap, I want it. <laughs> Luckily, I was working and, and could pay for you know 2500 bucks for the top-of-the-line Yamaha at the time. It was just basically for a practice kit. Now I'm trying to learn it on what it can do. Right. And, you know, record into the Studio One stuff and see if... I always like the guys... uh, There was a guy that used to demo stuff for Yamaha or Roland. I think Yamaha. Tony something. He's a New York guy. Yes. Yes, I've met him, but it's been years... And he was... Uh, he was amazing. The guy could play acoustic kit, but he'd fire off all these samples yeah. in real time. He wasn't playing with a click. He was firing off stuff in real time with pads, and then he'd come back around and refire it and play. You know, I haven't heard of him for a long time, but he was... Tony really- Visaconti? Yes, I know. You're Is that him? Yeah, Visaconti yeah, or... Uh- I just saw a clinic of his in the 90s and yeah. was just like, oh my God. And I was triggering drums then. B-I-S-C-O-N-T-I, a little bit. Something cool. like that. Yeah, I know you're talking about now, yeah. He came to Columbus Percussion when I was working there uh-huh. in Columbus. Oh, oh drum shop guy yeah. too. Nice. Yeah. And he uh, he said, here's my uh, Erskine impression. And he did this thing and everyone's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. How does he, what? And, and, he, and, and of course, playing loop grooves, mm-hmm. loop style grooves and different things like that, hip hop things was just kind of becoming a thing where it's like, you know, you can recreate those feels on an electronic kit or an acoustic kit as a drummer mm-hmm. and so people are like, oh yeah, because then rap artists were starting to use live drums again and things like that So, and it just became this whole new style yeah. this hip hop thing and things like that I just, thought it was that. In, I just thought it was inventive of him to be able to do that Shit, it was like yeah, wow! It, yeah, it, yeah. it blew my mind to watch him do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like watching Simon Phillips play. It's like he's got eight arms, <laughs> and when you're hearing a guy play with you know triggering stuff and playing a live kid, it's like he has twelve because all this other stuff's going on. But it's one right. guy, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I was gonna, I was going to say real quick. I, yeah, I am still working with with Savannah Jack. They are working a ton. Good. So, but thank you so much for. I told Mike. I said I called Lee literally six days out because we have two days home here or two and a half days home. We're just kind of coming home when we can and then going back out. Wow. So I'm trying to keep this thing sustained, keep the balls in the air with with interviews, and then so I can put out one every week. So tomorrow, Greg Loman's uh, podcast is uh, going to be available, and then I go. We got three more. After Dude, there's that. a wa- there's a walking medical. A miracle right there. Well, I tell you, man, I'm excited for people to hear it because it's it's. He's Dude, I was a, there when he played. I, I mean, I was subbing for him when he sat in when he played the first time. 
Oh yeah. Well, I was oh, well, you're, for, well, yeah. Your name comes up in the conversation. I was subbing for, for Kelly, sure. and man, when when he sat in, it was one. Of, I, I still get a little choked up. By it. it was one of the most emotional things I've ever been a part of as a player yeah. to stand behind a guy yeah. in a neck brace, and he picked the song he wanted to play. Yeah, I'd asked him earlier that week. I was like, I knew this gig was coming up in his hometown, and I was like, Hey, you want to play? Oh, I can't remember the name of the song, but it didn't require a lot of movement around the kit. And I said, You want to play this? I said, Man, maybe you can play that song. It probably wouldn't hurt you, you know, move wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he goes, Well, I'd like to play Red High Hills. I'm like, Dude, it's your chair. I'm just keeping it warm. Whatever you yeah, want to play, right, right. whatever. And it was the encore. Oh wow! So Kelly was coming back in, and yeah. she was. I so I had already unplugged. But the, the monitor guy said she was going, go ahead, Lee, go ahead, Lee, and heard her gasp when she saw me standing in the wings. She said, no way. Wow. And she, it took her a minute to start the song because she started crying. Uh, yeah, there's a picture of her hugging him. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm right behind him because yeah. it was like, wow. Yeah. Greg had his own meet and greet that day, too, with family and all. It was killer. Wow. <laughs> Well, it was, um, he's got a lot leading up to that, that that it seemed like, uh, Greg's story leading up to that and how he managed to get through it all, you know, I mean, who knows how much longer uh, he's going to have to deal with certain things, but he says he doesn't remember anything. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, I'm still amazed he doesn't remember a thing. It's probably to his... You know, advantage because I mean that post-traumatic stress on on those types of things can be very real. So that's that's great. And he and he killed. He played free will at, at the Neil thing and yeah, killed it open-handed. Played. And I was like, because after he told me that's the song he was playing, I went back and tried to learn it. And I was like, he's going to be doing how are these. You know. Yeah. <laughs> that's anybody play you that stuff. I want to sit behind that kid because everybody was saying how awkward it was. Yeah. We got some video. Yeah, I think yeah. I've got it on my phone too. I have to show you. It's, oh, really? Yeah, it's just. But you, yeah. It's, it's. Man, I want to jump into. Um, first of all, thanks for so last minute. Uh, like oh. I said, trying to fit this in with my schedule and stuff like that. Absolutely. But it's been a fun challenge uh, to tr- to try and uh, keep keep the ball spinning uh, with this because um, no, I think that uh, just to try and build as much momentum as we can and right now it's been all drummers in nashville but man there's so much information to be tapped into yeah and i mean there's a couple other podcasts out there that i'm a fan of yeah but they're not in nashville there's been a couple of guys who've done them yeah and i was like man i hope somebody does this in nashville so when you started doing that i was immediately like oh cool yeah because now we have this medium podcasting and the YouTube stuff that we didn't have as kids. Right. You know, we were lucky to have MTV when cable hit. Yeah. You know, before that it was three channels and a radio and... Yeah. And there were still videos. Yeah. (laughs) Or watching the late night shows and see who was going to be on there, what artists was going to be on there, or Saturday Night Live to see who was going to be playing. Yeah. Just to pick up on those things. Or PBS would show something every once in a while. That's where I saw... Austin C. Limits. Jack DeJanet for the first time. Yeah, or Austin C. Limits, right? All that good stuff. Um, man, I know you're in between things right now. That was my impression from your text. So tell me what's going on. Uh, well, right now. I just got a call last week, two weeks ago, to go out with Aaron Tippin, uh-huh. uh, Robert Blair, who's been there, I think, for seven or eight years, maybe, maybe even longer. He's going to move on and do something else, I guess. Yeah. Uh, just He just said it was time to move on. And Tom Hurst, bless his heart, 
uh, recommended me through a couple other people. Yeah. And I know a couple of guys in the tipping camp that are now there. Okay. Uh, and I haven't even downloaded the songs yet. <laughs> Rehearsals on the 16th, 17th, and 18th. Okay. And I guess we go out the 21st and kind of we're all checking everything out. I think it's almost a whole new band for Aaron. Okay. Like the bass player who's been with you forever is retiring. And my buddy Kevin Wood, who I've known for like almost 16, 17 years mm-hmm. here, he's the bass player. Vince Marino, I think, is on keys. A guy named Lee Bogan's on guitar. Mm-hmm. So it's guys that you know I've known for. They've never all played together. Yeah, which is a lot of the case in that stuff. Yeah, but we're gonna see what happens. And I've I've met Aaron many times when I played with Chestnut. And mm-hmm. Aaron was always just great, just an up guy. Yes, you know he's a Carolina boy like me. So we're gonna get along there, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so we're just and then that happened. So we're gonna go out and then I got another call, which is weird, which I didn't tell you about. Uh, you remember Bad Company had a, two singers, right? No. Okay, Bad Company had Paul Rogers. Yeah. And then there was yeah. a guy. Uh, I, mean, I was going to say Paul Rogers and... Brian Howe. <laughs> okay. Brian Howe was the other guy. There was Bad Company reunited in the 90s. Uh, Simon Kirk on drums and mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember the guitar player's name. But like everybody but Paul Rogers got back together. Yeah, okay. And they got another singer named Brian Howe. He had no smoke. Uh, There's no smoke without a fire. One night... Uh, Holy Water was a really big hit for Bad Company in the 90s. Well, he's got a guy producing him here named Mitch Malloy, who's a melodic rock guy in his own right. And Mitch called me and heard about my playing. was like, hey, let's get together and have a jam. Yeah. Okay, so in a couple weeks, I'm going to play with the singer from Bad Company just to see how it feels and maybe do some recording with him. I don't know. It was just like, hey, let's come jam together. Hal lives in Florida. But it was one of those things. It was like Brian Howe added me on Facebook. Uh, surely that's a joke. I knew who the guy was. Yeah. But I was like, sure, it's a joke. And then I got an email thirty minutes later from Mitch saying it's not a joke. Brian Howe's trying to find you, and I want to talk to you. Nice. It was and Victor Broden, uh, based oh, yeah, on Thompson Square. It was Victor because me and Victor have been talking about doing a rock cover thing for a while, and yeah. Mitch is the going to be the singer. Oh, but Mitch and I had not met yet. Yeah, yeah. Because Victor's been out with Thompson Square. I was going to say, where where do we connect the dots with that? How does he? How did he find you? It was through Victor. Victor, yeah, through okay. Victor Broden because Victor and I had played a couple of those Kings X things together, and we got on real well. Yeah. And so Victor and I've always joked about we got to play together, and then he gets the Thompson Square gig if he's gone. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I mean, get the work while you can. Yeah. yeah. But it's one of those things. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Right. But I had not met Mitch yet. So when I met him, was literally on the phone last week going, hey, let's just get together and jam and see how it feels, and maybe we'll do some tracks together. I don't know what it's going to be, but it sounds fun. And he's not, do you have any of that material sent beforehand, or are you going to show up? And- uh, the only thing that he sent was like, hey, check out these couple Bad Company songs, so that way we can play through these, and maybe he'll get that way he'll get a feel. We'll yeah. walk in all knowing like Holy Water. Yeah, yeah. And... And then we can sit down and play. You know, yeah. sit down and have a common ground. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that feels good. Let's try some of this stuff. Oh, you know, that right. kind of thing. Yeah. In a studio or in a rehearsal? Room? I don't know where it's going to be. Yeah. It, it, it's just, right now it was like, hey, let's have a jam. Okay. That's awesome, man. So I, I guess the 20th, I just don't know where. And your rehearsals with Aaron are... 16th, 16th 17th, and 18th. 18th. And then you, you guys don't go out to the 23rd. To the 20th. We go out the night of the 20th. Oh, so, so, I, so I have basically I have a session the twentieth, 
Yes. And I just told I was like, hey, I've got this thing, the 20th, that I can't get out of. Yes. That, that this guy's coming in. Yeah. So, and yeah. so they did rehearsals 16th, 17th, and 18th, yeah. and then we leave the night of the 20th right. after I jam with those guys just to yeah. see what happens. I don't know. Yeah. That's great. I've got to open to anything at this point. Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, uh, well, uh, going back to the tipping thing, uh, preparing for, does he, is he organizing a set list? Of material, or is it going to be like here's the catalog? Because Aaron's been around for a really long time, so uh, you know I know that sometimes if somebody's catalog is pretty deep, they're going to want you to be able to pull any song out. And uh, or is it like here's the twelve or sixteen songs we're going to do for this summer? It's probably going to be more like the latter, more like yeah, the twelve. Yeah. Well, probably like the fifteen to twenty songs with his. Yeah. Yeah, because he's had what three number ones and then countless top tens mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like a lot of those neo traditional acts that can still work. Yeah, you know, you look at Mark Chestnut, Joe Diffie. Yeah. Uh, I put Terry Clark in there, Sammy Kershaw. They're all working. Yes, you know, you don't hear about them because they're not on CMT every two seconds. I know, but they're all working and they're all yeah. you know, and the gigs actually they pay pretty well. And it's you're not out for three weeks at a time. Which yeah. at my age and having a four year old and a family now, yeah, I don't want to be out for three weeks at a time. Yeah, he'll go out for like a weekend. Yeah, and he might do forty, fifty dates this year, mm-hmm. maybe more. Yeah, who knows? And do you feel like that that's going to give you an opportunity to keep other plates spinning? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you can be in town and do other stuff along with that. Yeah. I mean, that's just one thing, and everybody should do that if they can. Right. Yeah. And uh, I want to back up to the last gig you, the last major road gig you had, Heidi Newfield. Mm-hmm. But in between that, how busy was she? Was it a similar story? Uh, with Heidi, 2010 and 2011, we were pretty pretty busy. Yeah. 2012, it kind of slowed down. So yeah. I did two gigs in 2012. I did hers, <clears throat> but then I also played with singer songwriter Chris Knight. Yes. You know, yeah. Kentucky guy. Right. A little dark. Yeah, for sure. He's great. Uh, he was, it was just one of those things, hey, uh, need a drummer. Come out. Michael Grando did that gig for like seven say, years. I was going to say, I was going to say, who was the drummer? Because he's good friends. He was, I split the Savannah Jack gig with him for about two or three years. With Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Grando. And then... And then uh, he, yeah, I remember he got that, and then they were start working more, and I started working more with them. But he was the one, and I knew he did that because my friend Tim Marks played with Chris Knight for a short time. Okay. Um, and uh, and I heard different stories about. I mean, the, I think the music is really cool. It just, I didn't know what kind of personality it was. The music's amazing. Chris is a bit difficult. Yeah. Uh, he's really hard to play with because uh-huh. uh, it doesn't settle. Somehow he can change tempo in mid song, or in, I'm sorry, in mid strum. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you have to follow him too. And we're talking alt country, right? Oh yeah. So he's it's, huge in Texas. He's from Kentucky. Everybody okay. thinks he's from Texas. He's from Kentucky, yeah. and uh, and it's alt country stuff. I mean, yeah. I think he's in his late fifties now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so but it's real. I mean, the songs are amazing. Yeah. I hated that I couldn't find a good spot. I describe it as <clears throat> somewhere between his right foot, or I'm sorry, his left foot, his right strumming hand, and his vocal. I had to figure out where to put the groove. Well, that's why I'm throwing out a ton of stuff. We're talking about Heidi's gig. We're talking about yeah. juggling all this stuff, getting ready for Aaron's gig, and then playing with Chris Knight. But really, 
we're talking, we've been talking to so much to Nashville drummers, and a lot of them have been doing uh, pop Nashville country yeah. acts. And there seems to be a certain formula that works really well where you're playing with a click, you have a set list, you have certain things, there's certain criteria that fits in modern country music that doesn't necessarily fit in other genres, even rock and even pop to a degree. But alt country seems to be that thing that there's a looseness about it. Oh, yeah. And you have to accommodate. You can't come in with a click and be extremely rigid. That's why I want to know, like, how did you, like, what's the difference between that? Could you describe the difference between Chris Knight's gig and Heidi Newfield's gig? Heidi Newfield's gig is... Because you're doing both at the same time. Right. Heidi's gig was very straight ahead, you yeah. know. Uh, no, nah, I don't know. If I was, well, yeah, pop country, right? Okay. And she and, then, and people may not know she was yeah she was a lead singer on Trick Pony and yeah. is again right they're back together they're back together. Uh, well, at least two of them are. Uh, it wasn't juggling because Heidi had a big hole in her schedule basically when okay. she got signed to yeah. Sidewalk. She moved from Curb to Sidewalk. And that's not a pun. That is actually, she went from Curb Records <laughs> to Sidewalk Records under the same building. You know, Mike Curb still is the, the head of it. And so they're going to release a single on her, so they were doing radio day. So I had this big, like, four, five, six, seven-month hole where nothing was really going on except yeah. for me playing in town. And the Chris Knight thing came. I was like, sure, I'll get in a van and a trailer. I don't care. Yeah. And so we went to Texas almost every weekend. <laughs> Wow. For months, but it was it was difficult. I, the one thing I did get out of that gig was I learned how to tune snares better because he didn't want it so loud, hmm. you know. And he did he didn't want a drummer that friggin' drove through the middle of it like you do in most of the pop country gigs, and like you do in Heidi's gigs, you drive. Yeah, you know, even with Chestnut's gig, you drive unless it's a ballad. And he wanted something. I mean, it's all country. Yeah. Which is more driven by the acoustic guitar and vocal to me yeah. than the drums, you know, a big barrel of drums coming down the line. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn and get drums or try to get drums that would tune lower mm -hmm. because there was not only you're using sticks, you're using rods, you're using broomsticks. That was when it really came in. It was like uh, one of the songs called Down by the River was broomsticks it was like well that sounds perfect for it but the only way to get that sound out of the so, snare but the, the, the brush the brush kind of broomstick thing is that what you're talking yeah, about yeah the broomstick the bristles I mean, it's a, yeah it's broom bristles right, right? gotcha and you can you know roll the little mm -hmm. rubber band up and down on how yeah. uh, hard you want it to sound right right and so I had to learn how to tune a snare drum uh, low enough for that to come out because mm -hmm. I'm totally unschooled totally I mean, I had a next-door neighbor show me how to play drums, and from then it was basically records and bars okay, and bands. Yeah, okay. It was never sit down and learn this. My technique is horrible. I don't know about that. But for years I played through the drum instead of with it. So, but with Chris, I learned more subtlety. Okay. Uh, I really hate that I couldn't find a way to play with him. It, it's just difficult. Some people you can't, it just doesn't match up. Right. The next guy might be able to do that. Hmm. I just wasn't that guy because I do play straight up the middle a lot, mm -hmm. even with brushes and stuff. Mm -hmm. If if it would have been a thing where, hey, let's find a nice medium point and let's start the song at one tempo and leave it the whole way and let's talk about it later, which is what the guitar player wanted, then we'd be fine. But it, you know, depending on how much Chris drank too. 
uh, it'd float quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was kind of unnerving because it would never settle. Because huh. the best thing for me is, when man, when it settles in a pocket, whether it's a click or not, yeah. and you can relax, and it's that's the best thing in the world. And it'll yeah. cruise nicely, you know, Right. for lack of a better term. Yeah. And it just it couldn't. Believe me, I'm, the, I'm a huge fan of Chris Knight. Any yeah. kind of stuff comes on the iPod, I turn that thing up. Yeah, yeah. Because it's real, too. Yeah, and gr- yeah. Grando played on some of that stuff, and it's wonderful. Right. You know, they were able to capture what he does. Yeah, yeah. But but you weren't juggling it in the sense that you were going with Heidi one weekend and then Chris the next. Oh, no. It was that, that, that gap gave you a chance to kind of, like, figure out how to manage playing with someone like Chris. Yeah. yeah. It was... Uh, <clears throat> there was just a gap and I needed something to do and yeah. that came up yeah. and it was like well if this works out you know and because Heidi's career was kind of in flux too yeah yeah right you know and then it was no more yeah. but it got her off the, the got her out of a bad deal you know got right. her off the label so right so you're not working with Chris anymore no but you had that period of time that kind of took you out of your wheelhouse as it were yeah a little bit and do you think that you, some of that stuff is carried over I mean do you play now you're getting ready. Well, you're getting ready to play with Aaron, but I mean, now when you do those types of gigs, the pop country thing, do you feel like it affects you at all, or do you kind of default back to what's worked for you for all these years? Oh no, no, no. it's uh, between the Chris Knight gig and watching the Muscle Shoals documentary. Okay, mm-hmm. I had a couple big epiphanies. One was the snare drum tuning thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say I'm unschooled in that because I never had somebody sit with me and go, hey, you can get it like this. And I would go play the Opry and be like, how does Bears get the sound out of these drums? It's low. Mm-hmm. Now I know. Mm-hmm. you know, And now I know how to pull them out of those. You know, It's like you play a tubby tom. It's like, okay, now I know how to do that. Didn't know how to do that before. Yeah. You know, how to hit a tubby drum or a low-tuned snare yeah. to pull the thing out of it. Yeah. You have to hit to me. You have to hit differently. And you were saying before you were playing through the snare drum. Now you're relax. Okay, between the Chris Knight gig and the Tuny thing, and I was watching the Muscle Shoals documentary up here one night. So excited about that because I just love that stuff, and I played down around there some. Yeah. Uh, you know, never done, never done a session or anything at, at those places. Yeah, right. I would be nervous as hell. <laughs> but I was watching and. Uh, Hawkins, Roger Hawkins was talking, yeah. and they were, they were talking about the Wilson Pickett thing. It was the first big thing they did with Jerry. I mean, really huge thing with Jerry Wexler from Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So another producer had come in from outside, other than like Rick Hall uh, at Fame Studio. So it was somebody from New York doing okay. the sessions. Okay, and said that they played. I think it was Land of One Thousand Dances. And Jerry Wexler walked through the studio and looked at Roger Hawkins and said, you're a great drummer. He goes, I just relaxed and became a great drummer. And I went, and it dro- I dropped my shoulders. That quote uh, made me go, ah. yeah. because I started finding I was doing this in grocery stores. Yeah. And when you do this, it changes. Yes. It changes where things sit. Yes. And so I didn't revert back to anything. If anything, I changed the way I play. I'm not hitting nearly as hard. I'm letting stick do the work. Mm-hmm. Like if I was schooled and went, you know, went to college or Berkeley or any of that stuff, I would already know. I would have already known this. Mm-hmm. But all my stuff's been trial and error, and I'm gigging. It was never sit down and learn. It was like, go play, go play, keep playing. Play. Sure. And so I started dropping my shoulders, and it changed the way where a beat sits for me. Yeah. A cl- 
click disappears like that in my ears. It will go away. I'll put it, I'll put the snare right on it and it'll go away. I can make it, it's a lot easier to play because I'm not forcing things. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, relax. And then you start watching people. Who's I watching? I mean, it's watching some music thing the other night and everybody in the band, these are all younger guys too. <clears throat> everybody in the band was just playing real relaxed. Oh, it's Joe Bonamassa. Oh, of course. Yeah. Everybody in the band is playing relaxed. Even Bonamassa, as intense as his playing is, he's completely relaxed and so it's fluid. Yeah. So that's been kind of my thing the last two years of getting to that point. And I'd get justification, like I'd go out and sub with Chestnut, and they'd be like, man, what did you do? It feels great. I'm like, I just did relaxed. That's great. And when, I mean, because you played with, how long did you play with Mark? Uh, five years. All right. So there, there's definitely some history there. They oh, know yeah. you inside and out. Because you got to improve somehow. And I'm not going to improve chops-wise. I'm, you know, I'm 46 years old. I don't want to play chops. I want to play music. I want to play songs. Yeah. And the biggest way to play a song is build a nice floor underneath it, which is what we do. Yeah. You know, build that nice foundation under it with a bass player. Yeah. And play songs and relax and make that thing, you know, really tight. Yeah. And so that way everybody else can do their thing on top of it. Yeah. And they're happy that you're doing that. And, yeah. And you'll get hired and you'll I hope. get work for it because that's what you do. I hope. <laughs> you know, it, it probably still sounds like me, but it, it feels different. Because I'm not playing as hard and, yeah. and well when I when I used to teach more, I would always tell my students that sometimes uh, a part of uh, technique you have to look at, you have to look at what you're doing and does it look awkward? Does it you know does it how does it how does it feel when you're holding the sticks a certain way? Uh, how does it sound? And if those things are in place, and sometimes maybe the way it looks might not matter as much. Because if you're getting, if it feels good, it sounds good, you're accomplishing the goal. Because when you think about it, our instrument, drum set, yeah. you know, is a young instrument. And it's oh, a developing so. instrument, you know, not, not drums per se. But then, uh, <clears throat> but then if those things aren't in place, then look at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And if something looks out of place... And I had that situation uh, in college. And you were saying, if I was in college, I might have had that. Somebody might have told me. I had that once. My teacher said, put your shoulders down. And I was like, I had no idea I was doing it. You know? Yeah, you don't. And I, mean, I really realized that when I was walking around Kroger pushing a cart, it's like my shoulders were up into my neck. Yeah. I was just like, and I started dropping them. Yeah. And my seat has come higher as I've gotten older. Yeah. Well, that's another thing I was going to ask you about is um, you sit really low. Not anymore. But not at, with the last, I mean, I think the last time I saw you play was maybe three years ago. So I don't know. Uh, I changed with a hydraulic seat. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you get older. You know, yeah, things well, change. Yeah, things change. And you want to make sure you can play longer. Well, and I sit. I think I sit relatively high, uh, but at the same time, I'm always trying to uh, tweak it and figure out what it is. So yeah. when I see somebody doing, and, and it sounds like you've changed, but but I remember you sitting lower. Oh yeah. And I'm and when I see somebody doing complete opposite of what I would do and sounding good, I'm thinking, okay, what what's working for them, and can how can I maybe uh, try that and adopt that? And yeah, it's it's all different from that. for everybody else. It's all yes, different. Yeah. I sat in on T.J. Wilder's kit downtown the other week, and when I sat down, I thought I was going to go to the floor. It's how I used to sit. Yeah. I used to take one of those Gibraltar short thrones and spin it all the way to the bottom where the, the, the 
uh, piano thread, yeah. piano stool thread was coming out of the bottom of the stool. It went as far, this was in the 90s. Yeah. And a little bit, you know, up until I got a hydraulic seat because I, I like that bounce. Yeah. For some reason, I played on a couple seats. I'm like, that'd be really cool. So that jacked it up a little further. Yeah. Then I got that Porters and Davies, that a monitor seat, oh, the, right. the seat shaker thing. The subwoofer? Oh, it's, it's, it's a seat shaker, but it's all built into the seat. It's a brilliant design, and it goes in with a monitor collar lock. There's nothing outside of the seat. Okay. And, oh, you I have, see. and it has the most uh, control. Like most of those shaker seats, to me, they were either on and punching you in the back, or they were off. There was no subtlety in between, so you couldn't feel the dynamics of the pedal or anything. Oh, I see. I see. This thing has got a brain, or, you know, it's got a, they call it an engine, the Porter and Davies engine. And it's got a, a, uh, Basically, a, a a gain of volume, and then it's got a rumble, is what I call it. And it, you can rumble the seat. Yeah, It's also the first shaker seat I've felt that you can feel all the drums vibrate. Yeah. So it's like having an 18 behind you, and you don't have an 18. Oh, okay. It's like having a sub, but you don't have a sub, and it's right. got that kind of subtlety. Yeah. So that jacked me sitting up even higher. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I just jacked the drums up a little more, and uh, it actually it's making me play more relaxed. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Now, do you feel like uh, using any type of thing like that on the road, say when you're constipated, that helps? <laughs> well, if it doesn't, the coffee will. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Speaking of which. Um, man, well, uh, let's go back mm-hmm. then. Uh, I always like to do this, kind of go back and figure out what, kind of what started uh, you wanting to play the drums. Because you say you had no formal education, uh, no teachers. Uh, my next door neighbor. Okay. Uh, it's weird. Ringo Starr made, made me want to start playing drums, but not the Beatles. Uh, I vividly remember three or four years old, back off Boogaloo, coming on my mom's Bonneville. And that snare drum opening. You know, that whole thing? Yeah. And I was just, what is that? <laughs> so the pots and pans started coming out. Yeah. Uh, and I luckily had a next door neighbor whose family owned the Sundrop Bottling Company distributor, or the Sundrop Bottling Company in our town. You have Sundrop in your fridge right now. Yes, I do. So you're carrying on the tradition. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> uh, this guy named John King. Yeah. And he had a, a Red Slingerland kit. But when the Ludwig Vista lights came out in the 75 or 6, he yeah. got one of those. So he had two kits at one point. Wow. So he started just showing me stuff. So script Slingerland? No, I'm thinking script Rogers. I'm sorry. Slingerland, like the original Slingerland? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the red sparkle Slingerland. He had the, the oval badge and everything. Oh, wow. And so he had that. And he played in the high school band. He was like four or five years older than I was. And my brothers are 11 and 12 years older than I am. Okay. But I still had music from them, like Doobie Brothers, Uriah Heep. I can remember... Iron Butterflies, Inagata DeVita, scaring the hell out of me when I was a baby. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, dun, 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 you're like, ah! as, you know, as a, yeah. as a kid, you're like, that's a scary sound, you know? And so I had that being played in the house or eight tracks in the car or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And John started showing me stuff, but I was kind of all over the map, what they would probably call ADHD today. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have that, you know, in the early 70s. You were being a kid. Yeah. yeah, and I think all kids should be kids, especially now <laughs> having a four-year-old. And he's so fun to watch, you know, yeah. jump around and all this stuff. 
Um, so John started to be showing me stuff, and then the the thing that turned it for either him talking to my parents or me getting that I'm good at this was uh, "Play That Funky Music" by Wild Cherry had just come out, and I could play it. Yeah, I could, and and John was like forward to the point he was he had a cousin at the street like you got to come hear this eight year old play the song. And then my parents kind of waited, like, well, we got a next door neighbor with a drum set. He can go over there, and I could. John would have me so over. They didn't have to spend money on a drum set. Your neighbor had it. Well, they were able to go. Is this going to take? Right. I think that was their concern. Right. Is For this an eight-year-old. Yeah. Is yeah. this going to take? Right. And John was like, "Yeah, he's he's good." So when I think I was nine or ten, and I got a CB seven hundred kit for Christmas. Right. And John put it together. John was Santa Claus, I guess, the night before. Yeah. Uh, and then it was playing to records, yeah. playing to radio because FM radio and AM radio then yeah. was so much more diverse than it is now. Yeah. Cause now it's corporations. So you hear the same 20 songs. Right. Then you can listen to radio for four hours and not hear the same songs at all. Yeah. So it was doing that, playing to records, mm-hmm. which is why I love getting back into vinyl. Right. You know, I, I remember John played me tower power for the first time. Okay. Like first time I heard Ebony jam. Wow. And it's not an ebony jam off of, it's off of In the Slot. Uh-huh. It's not a big Garibaldi, no, right. you know, yeah. linear thing. It's, yeah. dum, dum, gah, dum, yeah. dum, dum, it's just pocket. And Motown meets West Coast yeah. kind of thing. So it was just playing the records and then middle school band led to high school band. Mm-hmm. But my parents never saw it as a, uh, as a living you're like, hey, that's great. Well, what does, I mean, where are your parents from? I mean, you said you had older. I'm assuming your parents are older then. Uh, yeah, my still. mom passed two years ago, and my dad is 87 now, I believe. Okay. My dad was in World War II. My dad was at D Day. Okay. But, but I mean, even and, and even when your mom was alive, I mean, when you were growing up, your parents were probably older. Oh yeah. Then. So okay. Oh yeah. It was, so they're it, from the generation where doing something like this is maybe less. Common that yeah. we hear about today. Oh, going very into the much arts, so. going into anything creative. Okay, sure. very much so. And and this was a time, at least to me, I was in a little town. We were next to Charlotte, North Carolina, but to us, Charlotte was a world when it was you know it was the big a city. lifetime away. Yeah. You know, we couldn't go there unless our parents took us. Yeah, um, and it just wasn't an, an ex, I guess. Well, you don't want him to be a musician or. I, I don't know if that was it, but they, they were just like, hey, if you're going to do that, get something to fall back on. Right. So, ended up going to college. I've got an English degree. I was thinking about teaching high school. Yeah. Well, let me back up. Around, two things happened around 81, 82, or 83. One thing is I heard Rush, and I heard Van Halen. Yeah. Before that, I was kind of into light fusion and stuff like that. Billy Cobham. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Mangione, who's live at the Hollywood Bowl, is still one of my favorite live albums oh, ever. Okay, okay. Uh, Do you know who was playing drums in that? Uh, James Bradley Jr. Okay. Who went on, he played with some uh, like new funk act in the 90s mm-hmm. and then disappeared. I cannot even remember the name mm-hmm. of him. But yeah, he was on like the, the Feel So Good record and then he was on the live album. And, and then I went back and like, oh, Gad, ooh, Main Squeeze, what's this? Yeah. And then you got Steve Gad. So there was yeah. all that that light jazz, Gino Vanelli listened to some of that stuff. Yeah. Never learned it. Right. You know, but I listened to it and was like, enough to understand. Something, something about your brain that, that it, you gravitate towards those things that, that maybe most 
kids your age aren't necessarily listening to, but there's something about it that has to feed that hunger for more. I was yeah. doing the same thing with like Spyro Gyra and Oh dude. I access all areas, man. In high school, and, and like, why am I listening to this? What is it about this? Because the rock thing, all that stuff, yeah. But there's the fusion, especially, well, I guess coming out of the late 70s, early 80s, there was so much great stuff. Weather yeah. report and all that really good stuff. And this, that's what like John, my buddy John that, that taught me. Yeah. And, and actually, he still runs the Sundrop Bali Company. I was going to ask you about him, he's, where he's at. He's, where he's, he runs the Sundrop Bali Company. He, it went from his mom to him, and he runs it. Wow. And okay. you still keep family. in touch with him? Every once in a while, yeah. He's yeah. still got the Ludwig Vista light kit. He's still got that kit. That's cool. Uh, he's got a couple great kids. And yeah. older. I was in his wedding when I was like 12. Wow. So he's, I mean, he's like seven, eight years older than I am. So, But he knows what you're doing. He knows. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and But he listened to a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then in 81, 82, 83, heard Rush, heard Tom Sawyer. And then there was a band out of Charlotte, a regional band called Sugar Creek. These guys did the up and down the East Coast. And at one point, they did Star Search. They did Star Search the year after Sawyer Brown won it. Oh, wow. Well, there was a teen nightclub in Myrtle Beach. My, my family had bought a condo in Myrtle Beach. So we spent three months in, at North Myrtle Beach in Cherry Grove from the time I was 11 on. The summers, we went to the beach. I probably saw you there, I'm guessing. What, a magic attic? <laughs> Somewhere on that beach. It sounds like places I've been. Uh, have you ever been to Cherry Grove and um, North Myrtle? I don't know. I'm just, uh, maybe well, I have. Then, I just, Holden Beach is where we would always go, and then we go to Myrtle Beach for the day. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, Gabby's Ribs? Huh? Gabby's Ribs? Was it Gabby's? No. Nah. North Myrtle Beach? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of that place. Nah. Well, there was, a, there was an arcade at the, at the stoplight. So when I was 12 years old, I got a job there. I was 12 years old giving out skee-ball tickets. But around the time, maybe I was 15 or 16, I went and saw this band Sugar Creek at a place called The Magic Attic, yeah. which is no longer there, unfortunately. Don't go looking for it. It's no longer there. <laughs> yeah, it was, a teenage, it was a teenage nightclub right across the street from all the rides. And these guys were almost like the summer house band. And it was like seeing a national full production act, but these guys were from your backyard. Yeah. Then I found out that my brothers went to school with a couple of these guys. And then I found out that a couple of these guys went to my high school and they had done star search. And I went, I'm going to interview them. Just, uh, I, I didn't work for the paper or nothing. I was just a fan. I'm like, I'm going to go interview these guys. Got my foot in the door with them. And somehow it came up that I played drums. I'm 16 years old. And these guys are going, Hey, uh, uh, my buddy tells you play, you, you play. And I went, yeah, I play all stuff too. They're like, huh? <laughs> So what could you play? And there was a song of theirs. They were uh, some of their stuff was very Kansas like. Okay. And they did. They've done. They did five of their own records, but they covered stuff to the note. I mean, it was exact, and it was impressive to see these guys do this. And mm-hmm. They were amazing. Mm-hmm. They they do reunions nowadays, and they're still that good. It's wow. scary. Wow. And so one day they're like, "Yeah, right, kid." So they had me for sound check one day, and. So I go down here. I'm like, I'm 16 years old. I'm going to jam with Sugar Creek. Get there. They had had an argument. So they stopped for the day. But the guitar player, Jerry, was still there. And the drummer, Lynn Samples, played a Simmons kit with a real snare drum and cymbals. Oh, wow. So they were all powered off. And Jerry was like, weren't you supposed to jam with us? I said, yeah. Oh, he goes, wow. come over here. He goes, what were you supposed to play? 
so sorry. He goes, come up here. So I ran through it with just him, with just Jerry. And that night, Jerry went to Rick Lee, still to this day one of my best friends, the band leader, and went, he can do this. Kid can play. So in front of 2,000 people at 16 years old, never been on stage with a band in my life, other than high school band. Yeah. This was a rock band. This was yeah. two guitars, bass, keys, drums, and a, and a singer. Full production, everything. They carried their own production. Wow. And played their song. Rick still, I'd sat in with them later on, you know, on down the line. Yeah. So Rick still says, that's the best I ever played. It was the first time I did it with <laughs> And then Rick took me under his wing, the keyboard player. Okay. Uh, he had me down one day. Uh, and was like, I want to put you on a click and see what you do. Like, All right. So I go down there and no in ears, wedges. And now I'm not talking wedges. Drummer had a full range cabinet behind him. Yeah. He had a PA speaker that they, their PA speakers, there's one behind the drummer. Wow. He hit the click and about knocked me over the kit volume wise. But Rick still tells me, he's like, you, you hit it. You start to click and you can play with it, and it didn't scare you, didn't bother you. I said the volume kind of flipped me out. Yeah. He goes, yeah, but you can play with it. Right. So that band goes on, and I follow them around like puppy dogs, like a puppy dog. I watched the drummer Lynn samples had a huge effect on me because I got to watch him every night. It got to the point where they're like, "Don't charge Lee to come in to the club. He's part of the family. He's nice. with us." Nice. Anytime so, you want to come down. Was the Rick Samples? Lynn Samples. Lynn, Lynn Samples. Lynn Samples. I don't know why that's, that that's, should be easy to remember. Lynn Drum <laughs> Samples. I was going to say. Yeah. Ironic. And these guys, I mean, these guys traveled all over the country. And what was his style? I mean, what, what was it about him that... He was a rock drummer, and he was there. I could watch him. Yes. I could watch him. I could watch him from the side of the stage. I'd help him guitar tech. I'd do anything to hang out with the band. It was like, hey, this is great. This is yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. It, to the point of, they changed drummers when I was 18, okay? And Rick didn't call me. Yeah. And I was a little hurt by it. They hired a great guy. They, they hired one, a guy from Indiana who was one of Kenny Aronoff's students, who was also a big influence on me after he got the gig. But I sat with Rick, and I was like, why didn't you call me, man? He's like, dude, you could do the gig. He goes, but I want you to do something I didn't. Go to college. Okay. Didn't go for music. Right. But it was the social thing that really helped. Yes. Yeah. So four years of college. Yeah. At the almost the end of the four years, Sugar Creek had broken up. They were still playing together up until nineteen ninety. The band was together from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen ninety. In different incarnations and styles. Okay. But Rick ran a band from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen ninety. Wow. And I was at college, at Pfeiffer College in Meisenheimer, North Carolina, and he called. And our, our calls still always start the same way. Hey, what are you doing? Always start the same way. I know immediately who it is, even before caller ID. <laughs> and he calls us, hey, what are you doing? He goes, start another band. So really, he goes, yeah, you're a drummer. That's it. And that was it. And we started Too Much Sylvia. 23 years ago, and they're still together. It was a rock band that turned into a variety band. Nirvana hit. Melodic rock was not happening. Yeah. We wanted to work. The other three guys are older than me. Mm -hmm. I'm 21, 22. They're all 35 and up. Yeah. So they're like, let's make it a variety band. And it worked. Yeah. Lots of skits. Lots of playing with a click. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but playing tons of different stuff, everything from rock to Motown to the th- other three guys who get dressed up like women, and there'd be a sequence, and I'd be the only thing live. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, you know, wrapping vanilla ice while they get dressed in the girl outfits to putting on beards to play ZZ Top stuff. Wedding band stuff. Yeah. And in that area, beach music stuff. Yeah. You know, beach music is huge in the Carolinas. Nobody knows about it out. So once you hit the state line, it's like, huh? It really is. So what do you, I mean, beach music, what do you mean? Like, uh, uh it's show, it? Oh, no, no. No? Uh, uh, this is Carolina beach music is, uh, there's a dance called the Shag. There's actually a movie made about it from the 80s that was made in Myrtle Beach when I was hanging out a lot there. Wow. With Phoebe Cates and Bridget Fonda's in it. Okay. Uh, but the, I'll watch it then. It's, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not bad. <laughs> it's fun to watch it and go, wow, they made that spot that was in the 80s. They made it look like the 50s. Yeah. But uh, it's a lot of it's mostly shuffle music. Like, eight, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. That was my number. Or, uh, you're more than a number in my little red book. You're more. And there's a dance that goes along with that. And there's a weekend party called, uh, oh, what's it? It's coming up. It's called SOS. You know, these guys play it too much. Sylvia still play it to this day. And there's beach, there's some beach bands in the Carolinas that are so successful, they have a bus and an 18 wheeler. Wow. You know, it's, it's a huge thing. You're in one spot. Right. You, know, you might go outside of Georgia. You might go to Virginia every once in a while, but you're pretty much in the Carolinas. Yeah. It's its own thing. Well, how awesome is that? Oh, it's great. I went to see beach bands. That I, there was a band, there still is a band, called the Fantastic Shakers. They've been together since 67. Jeez. The original drummer just had to retire, and the original singer's still there. And the keyboard player I met has his own case company that I endorse and I'm trying to help called Mental Case. <laughs> they make some great stuff. And... Uh, it was an education. It was like, I always loved going, it was bars. It was, yeah. it was playing live. It, but at what point were you like, okay, I've done this. Oh, with what's, them? With, with yeah, them? yeah. What's the next thing? You went to school? Yeah, I, I, yeah, after about four years with Too Much Sylvia, it was like, okay, this is, this does what it does. Yeah. And these guys, this is great. About the beach music thing, there's an award ceremony every year. Uh, the Carolina Beach Music Awards, and they just won Song of the Year. Hmm. And a couple of years ago, they were nominated along with me of a song that we wrote in 1990. That they went and did a like a duet with some somebody else. Rick called me and said, "Hey, we're doing that song you wrote." I'm like, "Huh?" <laughs> and it got nominated a couple of years ago, oh, wow. which floored me. I mean, yeah. it's Carolina Beach Music Awards, but it's, it's still in that genre. That's huge. Okay. You know, it's like the Texas Music Awards. Yes. It's huge in that thing. You yeah, know. yeah. That's, I never but, knew about this. Yeah, but it was like, uh, I, at, during that, I was going out to jam nights and blues nights and stuff mm-hmm. like that because mm-hmm. I didn't have that in college. Mm-hmm. You know, went to, went to class, went and you know, did homework. That's it. Played a little bit. Was there a music program in the in the school you went to? Not, not really. A more choral program. There was okay. a choir program, but there wasn't really a music program. I played in that jazz band a little bit just to get my drums in the room. Okay. Like, oh, cool. I'll play with y'all. I'll rehearse with y'all. Then can I have a key to the band room so I can practice whenever I want? Yes. Yeah. So I was able to go you know, play how I've always played with headphones and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And... 
and then get through the get through college. But there wasn't a music program at all. It's a small liberal arts college. Okay. And I didn't go in as a music major anyway because right, right. it really wasn't like my parents just didn't see it as a viable option. Yeah. Yeah. Until they saw me play with too much, still were like, "Okay, you're making a living at it. You're putting a roof over your head. You're putting food on the table for yourself." We can't say anything. Yeah. As long as you stay safe, we're good. And at that point, when you were with uh, Too Much Sylvia, we were like, oh, I think this is this. I mean, it, were you feeling, this is what I'm going to be doing? This is no. what I want to do? Or was that did that come later? Oh, as far as playing drums or, yeah. or that band? Playing drums. It was kind of, wow, this is really working out. Yeah. And I've learned a lot. And, well, the greatest thing is I've played with my, one of my best friends, with Rick. It was like, and Rick's my mentor. He really is. He's 63 now. Okay. Uh, but he was really huge. And I told him last week, I said, I'm going to talk about you next week. <laughs> he was just, he, he played keys. He didn't play drums. So he yeah. was good as far as a, a guidance. He would give me records. I remember the, he played me Tower Power. And I had not heard Tower Power once I got into rock and roll. Yeah. He played me Soul Vaccination. And my jaw hit the floor. Mm-hmm. And I picked it up and I said, do you have the one with the pinball machine on it? That's all I can remember was in the slot. Yeah. And then he put on Ebony Jam. I'm like, there it is. Yeah. Then he walks out and gives me the entire collection. Yeah. Here, take all these records with you. Wow. Yeah. So, but it was, it was like, hey, this is working and I'm working. Then I started going to jam nights and stuff, was working in a music store in Charlotte uh, as the band, you know, started to get gigs and things. Yeah. And... I just enjoy going out and playing and playing with other people. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow, let's see what happens here. And then about four years into Too Much Sylvia, it was like, I got a little, I don't know, I don't want to say complacent, just restless. Yeah. About every four or five years, I get musically restless. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I've done this. What's next? Even though it's not a technical thing, right. it's like, I want to play grooves with some other people. Yeah, yeah. So then I got into the blues thing. Uh, and made a record with this guy back here, got John O'Gorman, just a local thing. But it was something different to do. Yeah. And around the same time, there was a drummer that came into my life that was a huge influence on me that nobody, unfortunately, doesn't know enough about. A guy named Jim Brock. Okay. Jim is a percussionist and drummer. He, uh, are you familiar with Erto? Yes. Okay. He plays a lot like Erto. Erto Moreira. Yeah. I can't pronounce his name, but, (laughs) but, you know, he's that kind of guy who can play kit with his hand and play a kunga with his hand and sound like two guys. Yeah. Jim spent a lot of time out with Janice Ian. Yes. But but I did two records with her. Okay. One where he played drum, or he did probably three or four records with her, but one was Burning, uh, Breaking Silence was one he played kit on that I can't, I think. I think the next one, I can't remember the name of the next one, but Janice said, I want to get a drummer. You played drums on the last one. I want you to play percussion along with Ciro Baptista. Yeah, that didn't suck. <laughs> he goes, but I, I want to get a drummer. Who should I get? And Jim went, get Steve Gadd. And she got Steve Gadd. Jeez. So it's Jim, Ciro Baptista, and Gadd on a Janice Ian record. Off of his, it, get Gadd. What year was this? That was like early 90s, 93, 94. Right, recent, okay. Yeah. But Jim, I had seen Jim play around town, and mm-hmm. he's the first one that kind of went, being a street player is okay, because mm-hmm. he's a street player. Yeah. Not schooled. I see. You know, and he's a street player. It's all feel. Okay. It's, it's 
Is that what you mean when you say street player? Like, which is not not schooled. Okay. You know, you're you're kind of coming at it uh, more instinctively okay. than knowing what you're actually doing. Sure. And you hope that this groove is right, mm-hmm. and hope that this works. Yeah. And then Jim taught me how to play some percussion, which I don't utilize that anymore because you don't get calls for it here. Yeah. But there, it gave me the opportunity to do more acoustic gigs. Right. Because they're more blues based uh-huh. in those things. Yeah. Uh, he did send me a, a really, he's a really, really intelligent guy about percussion. Yeah. And he's, he's just a fun hang. He's just, mm-hmm. he's a great guy to sit and talk with about life or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've made a smart comment to him on Facebook about a cajon and he sent me back a history lesson <laughs> that I'm going to post on the page. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He calls all the ones that are on, you know, guitar center. He's like, those are crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He used to make his own. Yeah. But he had a significant thing, uh, a significant impact of like, hey, try different stuff. And he played with different people all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, that's kind of cool. Be a journeyman and, you know, let's see what happens sure, here. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. So not just playing, but just kind of the, your, his approach to music business and the, and the people that he played with influenced you in that way. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he, just, he just had a very, I mean, I'm a hyper person. But he helped me kind of relax it more. It doesn't. I mean, sometimes it doesn't come across. But he's he was just a, a, the right guy at the right time for me to hear good things from. Yeah, everybody needs that. Yeah, you know. So, uh, but that you were still living in Charlotte. In, yeah, in Charlotte. So, at what what brought you to Nashville? I had played for about six months. I got in a band called Captain Cook and the Coconuts. And it was primarily Jimmy Buffett. It was like 80, 75 to 85% Jimmy Buffett stuff. Yeah. All live versions, which was so fun to play. Uh, so if you listen to any Jimmy Buffett live stuff, that's how we, we recreated that, basically. Okay. The singer sounded just like him. Mm-hmm. It was just as entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and the keyboard player could do Almond Brothers stuff. We did Little Feet, which I dearly love. Oh, yeah. Oh, fun. Oh, yeah. I'm like... Hey, uh, we're going to do uh, Hate to Lose Your Loving. I'm like, really? Cool. I get to learn that cool hi-hat stuff. And, and I already loved it anyway. Mm-hmm. But that didn't work out because they wanted a drummer who sang. Mm. And they already had three guys who sang in the band. So I'm thinking, why is this an issue? You guys already sing harmony. Yeah. But they wanted more harmony. They wanted, they wanted three part along with the lead. Okay. Okay. Or at least Ron did, the lead singer. Yeah. Okay, so that kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Or at least for me it did. Mm-hmm. And I had a buddy of mine go, hey, uh, you ever been to Nashville? And I went, nope. He goes, let's go over there next week and check it out. Okay. And he had a buddy, a bass player that I knew back home named Ron Cheek. And Ron was out of town. And so he said, y'all go crash at my apartment. So me and a guy named Frank Surreal both came over here in 96 to check it out. And we went out every night and every day, like you do. Yeah. Uh, met Steve Me some more that week. Okay. He was playing Barbara's. Mm-hmm. Uh, met some of the guys Mike Kennedy was playing with, but Steve Cummings was playing with these guys at the boardwalk on Nolensville. I think it was on Nolensville. Yes. Yeah. I remember that place. And Mike Brookshire. Uh-huh. Were you here when Mike Brookshire was running around? What year did you move here? 2000. Close. I don't know if Mike had already left or had cancer. He had bone cancer, but he's okay now, but he's back in Georgia. Okay. But we, and we met, you know, just met some guys during the week and we sat in everywhere and everybody was very encouraging. Like, hey, you guys would work both me and Frank. Yeah. Frank was a drummer as well. 
Yeah. Frankie ended up playing for Unknown Henson for a while because Unknown is from over there, from where we're from. Okay. Danny Baker's his real name, guitar player. But Frankie ended up playing with him later. But we were all getting really good encouragement, like, you guys would work. It'd be great. And we went to Gabe's one night. There two things solidified it for me. We went to Gabe's one night, and I sat in and played. And there's a bass player named Brenda Clark. And she looks over at me, and she goes, play the shuffle. And she goes, where are you from? She's real salty. She's like 60-something. <laughs> she plays that at John A's now. Okay. She, where are you from? I went, Shaw, North Carolina? She's like, tell me when you move here. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you play good. I'm like, all right. And then Steve was really, you know, all, Steve Meesemore was really encouraging mm-hmm. and those guys at Barbara's. So we, this was maybe September, August. Still playing around Charlotte, still playing blues gigs. And then Eddie Bears did that thing in Modern Drummer that mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. somebody asked him something and he opened it up to everybody. And he, it was, he was trying to answer a guy's question. He said, well, if you want to send me a tape, great. Anybody who else wants to send me a tape, please do so. Send it to the money pit care of Eddie Bears. And I will listen to it and critique it. And he did. I've got it framed. I need to put it out. It's in the garage right oh, now. Oh, wow. It's in okay. a box. Yeah. But I got a, it, he'd obviously listened, but had his secretary at that time. Because Eddie, at that point, Eddie was probably the busiest drummer in Nashville, you know. Right. Throughout the 90s and yeah. probably still one of the busiest. Yeah, He's for sure. still one of my favorites. Yeah. If yeah. not my favorite. And his letter came back to me, Lee, love your plan. If you move here, you'll work. And I'm like, Really? He goes, make sure you get a job to sustain yourself while things are unfolding for you. Yeah. And you can use me as a reference. Uh, okay. It was like, it was like you, boom. It was like being knighted. It's like, hey, you're good enough. Come on. Yeah. And my buddy Frank got cold feet and backed out. Mm-hmm. And it came January, January 97. I went, I got to go. And I went. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and immediately the next weekend I moved here, Misa Moore calls me and goes, hey, can you sub Barbers for me? I didn't know country one. Mm-hmm. I knew some of the 90s stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you threw a, a... And I'd heard the Johnny Cash stuff, but I'd never played you that stuff. Right, right, right. And there is an art to that stuff. It's yeah, it's a yeah. lot about space, but there's a way to play it right. to play it right. And I'm like, man, I'm a five-hour gig at Barbara's? Man, I don't know. He's like, oh, you'll be fine. Dooley will help get you through it, Mark Dooley. He's like, Dooley will get you through it. And I went and played it. Yeah. And just started like everybody does, just play play, go meet people, play. How'd that get going? I mean, I guess fine. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody, they didn't throw me off the bandstand. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't go, Hey, we need to call our buddy. Yeah. You know, and it was a Saturday night too. And a Saturday night at Barbara's in the alley. And that was right after Fiddle and Steel opened, I think too. Mm-hmm. So it was across the way and Barbara's was pretty jumping. Skulls was still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I guess I did okay, but I knew I was like I have got to learn this stuff right. Yeah, yeah. Which bore my love of classic country music and the art that it is. Right. First, I didn't listen to any old country, but right. once I moved here, it was like, oh wow, I really get it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think I think it's taken for, people take it for granted that like oh it's easy and 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 there's just that people talk about it all the time playing country. And drums is is easy to do, and and so you, it's not on the radar when you're learning to play. Yeah, it, the hardest thing is not to overplay. Yeah, yeah, the hardest thing is to sit there and just go the whole song with a brush and a stick, you know, mm-hmm. Buddy Harmon style, mm-hmm. and not want to do a lick. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So that I mean, so you, you decide you were here, so in '97, 
And then, uh, were you working as well? I mean, as far as like, did you w take Eddie's advice and get a, a day oh, job? Oh, yeah. I, I got a day job because I worked at music stores and a drum shop back in Charlotte. I had an in with a guy named Mike Spiracino at Pearl. So mm -hmm. I went by there and I got a job in the warehouse. I, I found a job that I could, if I got a gig, I could get off work. Yeah, they understood. Um, yeah, they got it. And they had other guys that worked there that did that. Yeah. There was a lot of players that worked there. And it was just in the warehouse. Uh, at one point, I ended up working with a lady who worked in the parts cage, and she made some of Larry London's drums at one point. So it was like, I think somebody put a picture up of Larry holding a couple of drums, and I bet you money Francis made one of those, at least one. Oh, wow. So, but they got it. It was yeah. like... And so I just played and played. And if there were days that I got a gig late, I didn't want to come in the next day, I'd call in sick or call it, you know, hey, I got a gig. Yeah. Nobody had cell phones and nobody could call you. They didn't want anybody calling into Pearl to ask for you for gigs. So that was the era of the pager. <laughs> Everybody wearing the pager on their hip, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they got it. And I worked there up into the Gary Allen gig. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't get. I tried to get a tried to get an endorsement deal with them. They were, the, but at that time, that was when everybody in country was playing Pearl. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in the nineties, seemed to be the the glory days. Oh yeah. Pearl and country and and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like Ludwig is now. You know. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of thing. And uh, but they had when I put my application in, I got an artist gig, and they went, "Man, we just got word from Japan. No more country guys." We have saturated the market. Wow. And they, the assistant A&R guy, Lou, came out to the warehouse and told me personally, he's like, dude, it's not your plane, it's not your gig, it's, we can't. They oh, won't allow okay. us. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay, you know. Timing. Yeah. But it's okay. Yeah. Man, I want to move uh, on to uh, your work with uh, some of the artists that you've been working with in Nashville. And okay. Was Gary Allen the first major artist that you worked with? Okay. I had auditioned for a couple. In fact, I auditioned for Tanya Tucker the year before and Pat McDonald, we both knew going in. Uh, Raymond Massey was coming off the gig, but Pat and I were talking one night. He's like, there's one of those things. Did, hey. Raymond, did Raymond play with the Wooten Brothers? Yes. Yellow Kit? Yes. That's where I first Make met you. Make you want to go you. home and burn your shit. That's where I first met you. It was you hanging out with George Lawrence. Oh, wow. Again, George's name comes up again. It was probably 2000, 2001, right when I was here. I go, and you're there. I knew George a little bit from Forks, and he introduced me to you. Wow. Because I, I, I didn't go watch them that much. I, I went every once in a while. Me too. Because it pissed me off. I'd be like... I can't do, but I worked at Pearl too, so I heard Raymond almost daily. Yeah, because Raymond put the kit put still does put the kits together for Pearl. I think, oh. like the Nam display, I think Raymond still does that. Does a great job. So when he would set up a kit, obviously, like if Omar Hakeem was coming in to check out a kit, he would set it up for him and obviously play it to check it out. And Raymond has just got a, he's got a large vocabulary. He, okay, <laughs> one thing I took away from watching this guy one time, hi hat. Crash symbol here, hands between the two. Deca 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 deca. Oh yeah. Deca 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 deca. You know, that's all I remember from that gig. And man, I'm off subject, but I just that put the pieces together because I haven't heard his name in a long time. Yeah. So you and Pat, Raymond was going off the gig. Raymond was going off the gig, and Pat and I were talking at Mike Brookshire's gig that Mike Kennedy played. Mike Kennedy, straight strummer. 
but a huge influence on me watching him play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're sitting there one night, and it's like, I got an audition coming up. Yeah, me too. Okay, I'll tell you yours if you tell me mine. That, 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 I'll tell, yeah. you, tell you mine if you tell me yours. It was like, Tanya Tucker, yeah, me too. And I'm like, well, shit, you're going to get it. He's like, man, I don't know. I'm like, well, you, one, you've got Raymond's backing going in, and you play like you do. Uh, put it lightly, I was in the room the first time Pat took a solo in Nashville, and the room stopped. Mm-hmm. It was like one of those things, what a, holy cow. I mean, it was, it, you've seen him play. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It was that ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a room stop for a drum solo like that. And for people that don't know, Pat's with Charlie, Charlie Daniels. Daniels band, and has been for fifteen years now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talked about him with uh, when we were talking to David Black. Right. Yeah. Oh, I heard that was great. Yeah. And, but uh, so Pat got that gig, and then I just kept playing in town. Well, came around the next '98, and you, if you get an artist gig in your first year or first two years, it's kind of an accomplishment. Even back then. Mm-hmm. Really now, because of all the people that are here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, but Gary Allen, they were moving his operation from California to here. He's from L.A. But all the country venues at that time in the 90s boom, all the country venues were within 600, I'm sorry, 80% of the country venues were within 600 miles of Nashville radius. Mm-hmm. So it made sense for him to move the group here. He could still live out there, which I think he did. He did a good long time he still lived out there kept an apartment here but still California's where he that's okay. a spot everybody moved but the drummer and the drummer was through marriage a cousin of his so he kind of had the joke well I couldn't fire family anyway so the drummer didn't move so they had auditions and I think eight of us and I as soon as I heard Rich Redmond's name come up I went there's no way in hell I'm going to get this gig and also, I got the material, and I listened to the first song called uh, Send Back My Heart. It's a shuffle. But Gary back then was very country. Still had the, had the cowboy hat on, you know. And I don't think it was something they put on him. He wore a cowboy hat. I see. Even in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I listened to it, and I'm like, wow, that's really, really a lot more country than what was even out then to me. He had Her Man and that, and that, and, and that first record. Mm-hmm. Went, and I almost called the band leader and said, man, I'm just going to waste y'all's time if I come in. I almost did the night before. And I went, no, they but let me go do it. That's a song that got me the gig. I uh-huh. couldn't believe it. Wow. We played that song first, and we finished, and the, the entire band did not say a word to me. They just kind of turned around with this look on their face. And the fiddle player who's got him, Ollie O'Shea, who's almost like Kramer from Seinfeld. He's that kind of guy. <laughs> He looks over and he goes, hey, nice tits. I went, thanks. I'm thinking, what the hell did that mean? <laughs> and so, and Gary had us all bring our drum sets because he's a vibe guy. He oh, has us all right. bring our drum sets. Uh, and so I'm taking my kid out. Rich is bringing his in. And I didn't even hear Rich play. I just went home and I'm like, well, that was nice. I doubt it'll turn it. Five o'clock that day. It's unanimous. You're it. You're it. I went, What? And it was one of those gigs of, hey, you got the gig. We leave in three days for a month. Oh, okay. Glad I was still glad I was single. Yeah. You know, and that was the gig, and stayed there for four years. Wow. And it was it was a it's a great it was a great ride. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Because it was one of those things. Gary was going up. He was the opening act, and by the time I'd finished playing with him, he was the headliner on some stuff. Wow. 
So, and, and Gary's real. It's, there was no kind of, uh, well, labels, I don't think were involved, as involved then picking material as they are now mm-hmm. with the whole 360 deals and all that stuff where right, they have right, their fingers right. and everything. Yeah. Um, Gary would go in the back of, back of the bus with a, literally a trash bag full of tapes and go through every one of them looking for songs. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Gary has done a lot of cool stuff over the years. Yeah, yeah. And he, he gave me my shot. Yeah. It was it, it was a lot of fun. And through that, the Chestnut thing, I mean, because we played with Mark for two years. And Jim Riley was playing with Chestnut. Oh, wow. So I would finish with Gary. And I would always go out and watch the other acts. So the first year I watched David Lee Murphy with Russ, Russ Cottle. And then I would watch Chestnut with Jim. And I became such a Chestnut fan because of the songs and the mm-hmm. instrumentation. Yeah. It was brilliant. There was swing. There was train beats. There was swampy stuff. There was pocket. And Jim, I watched Jim every night. It was amazing. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, for two years we did that. Oh, on the Crown Royal Tours. Hmm. And then the second year I watched uh, Rodney, Ed- Rodney Edmondson. He was on a break from Millsap, and he was playing with a guy named Keith Harling. Hmm. And then there was, uh, oh, who played with Shelly Wright? Uh, oh, can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Uh, uh, Stanfield, uh, Preston Stanfield played with Shelly Wright. Okay. <clears throat> and then I played with Gary, and then Jim played with Chestnut. On yeah. that tour, we all used my AOT drum set for making it quick, making quick five-minute changeovers between the first three acts. And then there was a 15-minute changeover between us and Chestnut. Okay. It was that fast. Wow. Uh, the only thing we had time to change out were snares and hi-hat. That was it. Uh, I had no endorsement deals at the time. The tour, any, since there were three drummers playing it, I made a deal with the tour guys. I was like, okay, anything gets broken, y'all cover. Yeah. Sure. So they, ended, I ended up with a whole set of cymbals by the end of it because <laughs> slowly but surely they broke. But that was it was just a blast, man. I got to see all these guys play every night. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. It was fun. It was a great hang too. Everybody hung out together, everybody's jumping bus to bus. Yeah. You know. Chestnut and Gary hung out all the time. They, you know, grab guitars, stuff like that. Wow. So when the when I got out of the Gary thing, you know, it was just I just got restless and Yeah. Okay, next. Played with Shannon Lawson during his MCA thing. Mm-hmm. And then and Ricky Van Shelton in there for a little bit, but okay. I was too loud for Ricky. Okay. <laughs> My favorite quote of Ricky's was, Lady, how, I don't know if I do his accent. He's got a great, uh, I love accents, but yeah. Levon Helm, I could listen to him read books. <laughs> but Ricky's got this Virginia draw, and it's like, Lady, you have a snare drum that's a little less aggressive. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm trying. And I was trying to see, not knowing. Yeah. You know, didn't go to school for it. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have known how to do that. All I knew how to was beat the crap out of it. Yeah. <clears throat> so I wasn't the guy for it. And then Chestnut's coming off the package tour with uh, Joe Diffie and Tracy Lawrence, and they're all putting their bands back together. And he needed a drummer. And they called and went, do you want it? Sure. That was it. So so you were still with Gary? No, no. no. I, I, oh, I, oh I, you were bouncing around. Yeah, I was bouncing around a little bit. The Dunn-Ricky okay. band left Gary in beginning of 02. Played with Shannon Lawson almost that entire year till his MCA career kind of stalled. Then Ricky Van Shelton for about six months. Okay, uh, that's a decent. That's a decent. Oh, not bad time. at all. Yeah, but, but then, but 
Okay. But then Chestnut was putting his thing back together, and they called and was like, hey, we know you. We know you can play the show. Nice. Here's the stuff. Come out. And so I went, no audition, just go none. Gotcha. We pulled up. <laughs> this is great. We pulled up to Mark's house in Texas. He still lives in Beaumont, and we were playing in McAllen. And we pulled up to Mark's uh Mark's house and I stepped out of the bus he backed his truck up he got out he literally goes oh hell we're gonna have fun I went yeah man he goes alright and Mark's a drummer and Mark's a pretty decent drummer Mark can keep time when oh, he wants really? to right. it's a little tough for him to try to play my kit because I sat low yeah but it was he knew where stuff should be mm-hmm. it got away from me for a little bit trying to chase other guys in the band you know if you're not playing with a click you can sometimes develop a habit to follow somebody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did that. Mm. And when I heard the tapes and realized it, that's when the beat bug came in for me. Yes. Like, I've got to, if I, if I've got to fix it and I, they don't want to click. Yes. Mark didn't want to click on the gig. Okay. Cause Mark wanted to be able to, if he did something in the middle of a song, he wanted to be able to, especially the cover stuff yeah. that he would do like in the middle of the show uh-huh. that he still does. Yeah. Uh, he wants to be able to go off book and whatever he wants to do. Right. Right. He'll start you. You don't have to follow him. Yeah. But he, he, you'll get an idea of where he's going to go. I'm a beat bug guy, too. And I know I've seen you use it, too. And I, there's not too many people, but I'm really surprised. It's such a great tool, especially it, if you're changing changing horses midstream, man. Yeah. And, but I heard that Mark had played, Mark was cutting uh, Save, uh, Save the Honky Tonk album with Bears and all them, and he wanted to do a Kevin Fowler song called Beer Bait Nano. The only tape he had of it was us doing it live. And he played it, and I was there in front with Bears and Glenn Ward from everybody, and I was speeding up, and I was horrified. I was, oh my god! And I started paying attention to it. I was like, okay, where it's coming from? And I finally figured it out of mm-hmm. what was happening. And I went to the band leader Slim, and I said, I've got to fix this. I'm going to do something. Trust me. He was like, oh no. And I told him I'm getting a thing called a beat bug. I said, I just, it's a speedometer, man. Mm-hmm. Keeps you real. Let's yeah. stop. You know, let's stop moving. Let's make this thing work, and it fixed. The first weekend I used it, Chestnut looked at me and went, "I don't know what you did, but I can sing anywhere I want. Oh, that's Keep cool. doing it." And Mark is a Mark can sing like you know George Jones on guys. You know he's yeah. got that kind of voice. You know when it's on, it's on. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, but it fixed it. Well, and it's tough not to stare at it. It's tough to. It's it's tough not to be like. It's and not be in your own zone out in your own little world, especially you, with a beat bug. Have you seen the app? It's not a beat bug app, but it's a it's exactly like it, but it's on your phone. Hello. Took it off. I took it off the snare. Yeah. That way, the snare opens up. I didn't mind a beat bug because to me it was like moon gel. Yeah. And yeah. I hate moon gel, but yeah. I like the drum. I like all the drums to be as wide open as I can get them. Yeah. And let them fix them on the other end. Uh-huh. You know, let them put all the stuff on it. Hmm. Uh. And there's an app now. It's it's called Live BPM, I think. Okay. Does exactly the same thing. And actually, it does it down to the hundredths point. How does it trigger? Just off the mic. Just off the mic of your phone. I'll show you here in a little bit. I'll set it on the floor oh, play. okay. See, I use, a, I use a, a rolling trigger that I clamp to the rim. Oh, yeah. And then I, I've kind of made up my own thing with a, with a Velcro right. so that it doesn't touch the head. And so it still gets. I play rim shot mostly, but yeah. when you're ghosting, it doesn't pick those up, and you could hit the picks. Oh, up. so you've got the big, the big little the version goes on the hi hat. It's no, it's a new one. It's a new, it's a newer one. But I've I've adapted the things to it, the, the trigger, and it's taped on the trigger. Oh, so okay, popping on and off, 
different snare drums, and I can use it as a cross stick. I mean, it picks up the cross stick, it picks up the backbeat, and it, but it doesn't touch the head. Nice. Yeah. Well, you're going to love this app when I show uh, it, because yeah. I discovered it maybe six months ago. Okay. And there was, I went to a gig, and I had forgotten to bring one of my beat bugs. Yeah. I've got like three of them. Yeah. Forgot to bring it, and it was like, well, let me try this thing out. And it worked, and I, I didn't stare at it. It, it's, it sits on the floor under the floor, Tom, basically. Yeah. And I use my phone for click, too. You right. can do that. So I put them side by side, so I just double-click and go back and forth of the two. That's a good idea. That's, that's what I've been doing lately. Oh, that's because I'm, I'm not using the beat bug when I'm using a click. Yeah. So it's got to be one or the other. Right. Awesome. Well, we're talking about me. I don't want to do that. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, so, okay, so working with Mark, uh, called you on tour to do that. Yeah. All right. And how long did you have that gig? I uh, spent five years with Mark. And did you record with him? No. Uh, the, the only thing that we got to do as a band was he put us on the album cover. Because I've seen that before. I've seen that album cover before. Yeah. It's great. It's, uh, he wanted... He did a version of Honky Tonk Heroes, Waylon Jennings' Honky Tonk mm-hmm. Heroes. Yeah. Uh, he was a friend of Waylon's. Whoop, and whoop. his son is named after Waylon. Yeah. Waylon told us, yeah, first born, you named after me. And Mark did it. Mark's son is his oldest son's name Waylon. Oh, yeah. it fits him. Yeah, um, and so he wanted to recreate the Honky Tonk Heroes album cover, uh, which was all of them sitting in a bar drinking. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So we got together at the trap at about ten thirty in the morning, and we left at lunch half lit. Oh my god! <laughs> because we started, they started shooting pictures around the pool table, but there was no alcohol out. It just not went. Wait a minute, something's wrong. Where's the beer? It's 10.30 in the morning, but it had to look like a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it looked like a bar. Yeah. And it, he put everybody in the band, the bus driver who'd been with him forever, the producer, the two managers, the road guys, uh, were all on the album cover. It's a great shot, man. Yeah, it's, it's a, the acoustic player, Kerry Stone, said something, and he's a smartass and really, really funny. Yeah. And Kerry said something. And we all busted out laughing, and the photographer went, look up, and that's the shot. It's yeah. not fake. It's we're dying laughing at something he said. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. He's dying laughing at something we said, oh, and yeah. that's the shot. Yeah, that's fun. It's like, cool, if nothing else, I got on an album cover. And Mark was nice enough to do And also, we were on the inside of it, too. They like road cases and bus behind us in the parking lot and stuff. I was like, well, that's cool. Mark's a band guy. I mean, he's the guy with the deal. But, right, and he doesn't have to do that, and that's not typical of artists, especially Nashville artists, or you know, to include that. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, but Mark Mark's a band guy. I mean, he grew up playing in bands. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's he's the artist. Right. I mean, he doesn't have to tell you that. Yeah. He just has to open his mouth and sing first words of "Too Cold at Home." You're like, "Yep, there he is." Yeah. But he's as far as like the hang and stuff like that, and so is Gary. Gary's a band guy too. Right. Yeah. Right. It, those to me make the best artists to work with and for. Exactly, exactly. You gel on stage because you've hung out that afternoon or after the gig the night before. There's that personality. There's not that wall, that invisible barrier where you're just providing this background material for somebody that you maybe saw walk through the bus. Yeah. The well, there's also that. the shared experience of you both came up playing in bars. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of dirt in your in your veins from all that. Mm-hmm. The, the shared experience where where you know where they're coming from 
Mm-hmm. You know, I understand that you spent many nights at a bar playing. It's not handed to you. So, mm-hmm. And they tend to like it or uh, res- not respect it more. They, because they've done that, they tend to respect it more, I guess, is the thing. Yeah, yeah. And the it's, work that everyone's putting in yeah. to make it work. That's cool, man. So you did that for yeah, five to, years? Uh, almost, yeah. Okay. To 08. Okay. And they just got, uh, had some health problems. Uh, that I had to deal with. Did you have back surgery? Well, what it started because I thought it'd be fun to jump off a cliff at Percy Priest Lake. Sure. <laughs> it was a 40-foot cliff. Holy crap. Now, I've got, and a lot of people have them. One of you two guys might. My son actually has them. I have idle hernias, which baby, babies get, you know, right down here below your belt line. You got them too. Uh, and it knocked one of them out, basically. Okay. When that happened, that was right before our wedding. Hmm. But, and then, you know, I got, okay, you know, hernia fix and all that stuff. Well, after our wedding, uh, I was playing downtown. I was supposed to do a split double and I started throwing up blood. Uh. And I had lost weight. I'd, I'd look jaundice at my wedding. I look at my wedding pictures. If they're in color, and I'm like, ooh, my cheeks were drawn up. I'd gone from 185 to 170. Wow. Okay. Well, I'd always had like stomach issues. I just thought it was road food. Yeah. You know, because you're on the road from the time you're 19 or 20, you're eating like crap pretty right. much, yeah. unless you're sitting down at a restaurant that you're going to order off the menu. Right. And so I thought it was crap. So from the time I was 30 up until the me being downtown and throwing up blood, I'd always taken eating like Pepsi or Tums or something like that. Right, right. Well, what happened was blood was sneaking out. Oh, man. Uh, and my, I threw up blood, and I had to cancel the night gig. I had to get off stage during the gig. It was so bad. I had to go for like two-thirds of the gig. I was in the, in the bathroom of the stage puking. Ugh. And luckily, my wife was down there. or She wasn't my wife at the time. But Danae was down there with me. And yeah. she just walked me to the car, and I started doing it again. She went, you're going to the doctor Monday. I had not been to a doctor in my entire adult life. Wow. And so we went to the doctor, uh, and he basically went, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You're missing half of the blood in your body. You have 10 pints of blood in your body. I was missing five. Uh, and I mean, the hernia thing I had dealt with it while I was still out with chestnut. Uh-huh. You know, I was still healing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But... This was also an issue, and they found that I had a an ulcer, right, about a baseball size or a tennis ball size ulcer in the middle of my chest. Wow. Sat in in the in twenty four hours with blood going into me, twenty four hours of transfusions. The doctor said, "The fact you're not dead is amazing. You should not have walked in here." Mm-hmm. I attribute a lot of that to playing. You play for thirty some years, your heart's going to be stronger. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know if that would save me. My wife saved me. Danae saved me. Yeah. By going, go to the doctor. Yeah. So we got that under control. I'm on, what is it, uh, Ameriprazole or Nexium mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. But it fixed the problem. Mm. And now, I mean, I've gone from 170 up to 220 at, at times. Because mm-hmm. now I can eat pretty much what I want. Still watch it, you know, yeah. so I don't get reflux or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. But I had to deal with that for a while. Yeah. And by the time I was finished dealing with that was when the Heidi gig showed up 
it's like, okay, good, I'm better. Nice. Or, or the Montgomery Gentry gig showed up, or the audition showed up, and out of that came Heidi. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Tell me quickly about that. Like, so the, how did that, the audition came up for Montgomery Gentry? That, how, I, was, that, I was playing downtown a lot with Jim Amoniak. Jim plays a rhythm guitar okay. with them. Okay. You know, it's guy, he's missing a pinky, uh, but he's one of the most, despite that, yeah. uh, he's one of the most amazing guitar players you'll ever hear, period. Wow. The guy, the guy's great. And he yeah. plays, he plays rhythm and some lead and acoustic with Montgomery Gentry. Been with them since maybe 2000. Joined them not long after they started. Okay, all right. Like, I remember seeing them without Gemma, and then I saw them with Gemma. Okay. And it's been with Gemma ever since. I see. So I was playing with him a lot downtown, and when they made a change, and uh, Tony Hammonds left, yeah, they had never had another drummer. Right. And there was some talk, Gemma and I, there was some talk about, we might have you go out and maybe play a weekend and see what's up. But to Eddie and Troy's, uh, you know, Kudos to them to going, we've never had another drummer. Let's try 20 of them. Now, I guess what well, blows. Yeah. No, they never had another drummer. So it's, I mean, they're in Nashville. Come on. Right, right. Get 20, get 20 guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And William Ellis got the gig. And to this day, just knocks out of the park. Yeah. Uh, and, but Heidi's people called Montgomery Gentry's people. Yeah. It was like, hey, uh, so. I don't know how true this is. This is just what I was told. <clears throat> hey, great. Oh, you hired, okay, you hired William Ellis. Who was second? And they said it was me. And I'm like, really? And I, I don't know if that's, like I said, I don't know if it's true. Yeah. If it is, great. Yeah. It got me a gig with Heidi Newfield. Sure. Without an audition. Well, they're not going to call and say, who who was third or fourth? <laughs> they want the best they can get. Yeah, for sure. I bet it, I bet it's, it sounds good. It was nice, but I mean, that was yeah. that's high cotton because I know a lot of the guys who auditioned for that. And yeah. I don't think they had one bad guy play for them at all. Hmm. I mean, every guy that went in there. For Montgomery Gentry? Yeah. Okay. We ended up touring with them that year on the Country oh, Throwdown cool. with yeah. Heidi yeah. and them. And that was a complete blast. That was It was the guys from Warped Tour. Yeah. They tried to do the country thing. Yeah, yeah. This was the first year, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's cool. But, and, and those guys were, I saw William play every night. I'd walk out front of the house and See, man, that's... Sit next to her... Sit between her Shuker's brother, Michael, who's running lights, and Billy Moore, who's running sound, and I'd watch the show and light their cigarettes. <laughs> but your take... I think what's cool about this is you've mentioned it before in tours you've done in, in the past where you've taken advantage of the situation and watched your other people play. Yeah. Essentially, your peers, but you're picking up all these things. You're watching them, how they're handling the different gigs. And then it's turned into... Something that you've done, you've picked up that gig from that, or or whatever. And yeah, it's just your, that's if you're on tour with other people, it you benefits can't say you to go watch school, them. Man, you are so schooled. No, you're I'm st- I'm street schooled in, in yeah. that way of, of I watch guys, but it's yeah. It's, but that, if somebody that, if somebody sat what George Stone's book in front of me, I it I probably couldn't go through it. <laughs> well, what you're doing is working, man. If it's working, that's great. Yeah. I'm glad it is. Yeah. I only play one way. I play like me, and everybody. And you play like you. Yeah, you know, and it's obviously working for both of us. And people are they're gonna they're gonna hire you for what they, this is the guy. This is you know if you yeah. want if you want Lee Kelly, <laughs> you should hire Lee Kelly. <laughs> well, hopefully, 
that guy's getting to be a better player as he gets older. That and I'm okay good. with that. I'm, yeah. you know, I know that the young guys, you know, there's a lot of young acts, yeah. and I'm not that guy. Yeah. And it does look weird. I've seen older acts have young guys behind them. I've seen young acts have older guys behind them. It does look a little weird hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. if it's that big of a difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's a lot of times why older cats don't get the calls for the younger mm-hmm. thing because it's more of a look thing at that point. Yeah, yeah. Because if you've moved to this, if you've moved to town and done those level cups, that level type of gig, yeah, you know anybody, can, any of those guys can do the gig. Is do they look the part too? Right, right. Yeah. It, it's not the, the the level of technique or chops isn't. It, it, you only need so much. To, to, I mean, if you've, if you've got great time and you've got good feel and you can play to a click and you can show up. Yeah, but then there's some of those guys that have, like, the younger guys that have, like, uh, Boone with Man Perry. Yeah. Holy cow. And Billy that plays with Dustin Lynch. I mm-hmm. played with Dustin for a little while when he was still in the clubs. Mm-hmm. But and I miss seeing him do La Villa at the thing, but I watched online. And Billy is just, man. Is that, what, what, that's his name? Billy Freeman. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. some of those guys just like wow, that's it's fun to watch them. I thought I, you know what? I put the pieces together. I saw Dustin Lynch. I did see him in Iowa, and I thought he looked familiar. I love Dustin, man. He is he deserves all the success he's working for. Wow, and he, and he can sing live. I mean, yeah. I did I did four hour club gigs with him like at colleges and stuff. Wow, the dude can sing, and he can you know he can play decent enough. He can play really good rhythm guitar. Wow. You know? So to see a guy like that, you know, it's like, good for you, man. One thing I want to ask about is endorsements and who who's endorsing you and who's been good. Uh, Promark. I've been with Pro, I've played Promark since I was 15, so I've played Promark for 31 years. Wow. I've been endorsing. That was the first endorsement I got. Okay. It's just like, hey, I've played you guys since I was 15. They're like, come on. And it's they've been great. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, started with Ty Drums, thanks to George Lawrence. Yeah. In 2001, when I was with Gary Steele, mm-hmm. we were, Gary was going, we were going, trying out wedges and in-ears. Literally A-being systems. He had two monitor desks, and we were at sound checking, and George went, hey, come check these drums out. Sat down, didn't look at the names, went boom, boom. Went, wow, these sound great. What are these? He goes, Ray Ayot is helping these guys yeah. out. They made the Drumsmiths mm-hmm. stuff, and I had an Ayot kit that yeah. I was playing. Right. Literally 30 minutes later, George came down there, and on a break, he went, Ray wants to talk to you, because Ray, Ray and I already knew each other. Ray built a kit for me in 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, oh, the Ayot kit. That yeah, the, the, that's the snare on there right there, the blue marble kit. Oh, nice. And he told me at the NAMM show last year, that's the only kit he ever made like that. So he's, he, told, he goes, yeah, it's one of a kind. I went, are you serious? He goes, yeah, we never made another blue marble steel hoop kit that I that he, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, so I got on with Ty, and they've had a little bit of growing pains over the years. But mm-hmm. the last two guys they've had in place, I I stepped away for a minute, mm-hmm. and then uh, a guy named West Wheeler, who had been at uh, Gibraltar and C Bruno and stuff. Called me when I was with Heidi and was like, "Hey, man!" And I was just, uh, the guy, I went to D drum for a second, and then when those guys went off to do Crush, mm-hmm. I just didn't feel right about it. Okay, it didn't, and I still always loved my Thai stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, they're made well. They're affordable. Mm-hmm. They're lighter than most drums. <laughs> they don't have a lot of mass put on them. You know, yeah. people put lugs that are you know four yeah. inches long, and they put these little bitty, you know, two inch long lugs Says on. Says the guy them. who survived a hernia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're easier to pick up. <laughs> and went back and kept playing one of my tie kits, and then now Todd Trent who was with Ludwig for 25 years, has been at Ty for now, I want to say three years. Mm-hmm. And he is making tremendous headway with what they do and awesome. how they make drums. And to me, they're like the little company that, that can. Mm-hmm. They're affordable. They sound good. Uh, it doesn't get hardly any better in the rep world that it does with Todd Trent. You mentioned his name to anybody. They're just like, oh, he's the greatest. And he is. Nice. And his stories are the best because hmm. he's been out with Ringo and he's oh, wow. really, I saw him post something about the Quiet Riot uh, documentary that's out because he's big friends with, you know, from Ludwig with all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. But Ty has been fantastic to me. I've got the one kit here that they don't make anymore. So I've got two kits, a Maple kit and a Studio Birch kit oh, that cool. I use yeah. out. Sabian, I got with Sabian, I guess around 2001 or two, around the same, not long after that, had bought a Larry London ride. Yeah. I'd always wanted one. Yeah. Found a Larry London ride, brand new, in the box, in the bag, with the video and everything. And then through, I think, Tony Hammonds from Montgomery Gentry at the time, mm-hmm. he was like, hey, you're digging those, you know. I said, yeah, I'm digging them a lot. And I'd beat on some Sabians off and on for years. Mm-hmm. And ended up getting a deal with them, Sweet. you know. And I'm I'm a very low maintenance in Dorsey. I don't ask for hardly anything. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, I've had in what 14 years, I've had three kits from Ty. That's fine with me. They play. Yeah, you know, yeah. Don't need a kit every tour. Right. Uh, so those are the big three. Okay. Really, and then yeah. the the seat thing, the Porter and Davies seat. Okay. Which is really oh Evans, oh big yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Evans Drumheads. Switched switched them for five years before I even got a deal. Had had some problems with, you know, the the other company where I played one night and the snare head lasted literally thirty minutes. Done. Huh. I had seated it, I'd broken in, all that stuff, and it lasted thirty minutes, the coating went away and it went completely dead. Wow. And we played a show with uh uh Lone Star. Yeah. And Keach was like, man, you've got to check this snare drum out. It's great. And I went up here and played it. And it was a HD head from Evans. Yeah. And thought it sounded great. So I started there and then started checking their stuff out and checked other head companies out. Mm -hmm. But then played Evans. And then I think three years later, I saw the rep at a NAMM show. David Northam introduced me to Mm -hmm. one of their reps. Mm -hmm. He's like, hey, man, send me your stuff. And I never did. I just was like, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm I went and kept getting heads from force, and I saw the rep at the next trade show. He's like, I haven't gotten anything from you. And I went, yeah, I know. He goes, don't worry about it. He goes, call me Monday. I'll give you your password. Because artists go, you have a way to buy without, you just go into, it's an online site now. Oh, wow. So he's just like, hey, call. I know you've been playing them for five years. Call. Oh, you're in. You're awesome. And both them and them and Sabian, and Ty, in the last two or three years, have come, you know, they're all doing innovative stuff. Right. You know, Sabian always has. I mean, yeah. yeah. And Evans right. with the new 360 thing, and now, yeah. you know, and Todd at Ty is, 
doing more stuff with snares. I've got a snare from them that's aluminum with wood hoop that I dearly love. It is my favorite snare that you can just detune it to almost flappy and it's still playing when it sounds great. How deep is it? Uh, It's six, I think it's six by 14. Oh, really? Wood hoops and an aluminum shell. It stays in the car. I like that. Man, listen, I think we've covered so much good stuff. Okay. And I feel like we've covered from beginning to end, back and forth and forward. <laughs> yeah, I jump all over the map. I think what I'm saying is that all these experiences that you've had that led up to these gigs and the different things that you've done in a very competitive market like Nashville, it just it just speaks volumes of how many different ways you can reach your goals. And it's not, and you know, there's there is the school system, but at the same time, we're we're our, we're all flying by the seat of our pants. Oh yeah, this business is so uh, it's so unpredictable, and it, there's no formula. It's everybody has their own formula, man, and uh, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. But I mean, what you've done is working. It, what's your formula? I mean, whether you it's just been natural, or you've been falling into it, but it's like no, it, it shows that you. You're piling on experience after experience and, and learning from it and watching other players play. Yeah. Live, man. It's kind of like that line from the movie That Thing You Do. You know, the Tom yes, Hanks yes. movie? Yeah, that's a great Just movie. keep playing. Doesn't matter with who or where or with who. Just keep playing. And that's that's really what it is. Yeah. Great. But thank you guys for coming over. This is a, I'm so happy you are doing this. 